0: New Testament. We will be really uh, throughout the New Testament today. So a little bit of a uh, flipping through the New Testament. You can uh, begin if you want in uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Again, we'll be in select verses today as we continue in our sermon series on the spiritual disciplines, training ourselves for godliness. How? What are the exercises that God has given us in the Word to be able to grow in godliness? Well, this morning we come to part seven of our sermon series, and we will be looking at the corporate discipline of what I will call fellowship, biblical fellowship. If you would uh, pray with me one more time, we'll dive right in. Father, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we open this uh, altogether inspired, trustworthy, and infallible word. Father, you have much to say to us, and in particular this morning we ask that you would open our hearts and our eyes so that we might see the beauty of the body of Christ, that we might see what a privilege it is to be sons and daughters of the king and to be called brothers and sisters by fellow followers of Christ. And this koinonia, this fellowship that you have given us through our faith in your son jesus and with one another as we go together on mission for the sake of the gospel living life together and sharing the gospel mission together what a privilege it is and what a discipline it is as well an avenue of grace father we are thankful for those who call um, this church home and that we can meet together regularly for fellowship for teaching for breaking of the bread and communion, and for fellowship. May our fellowship be biblical and well-pleasing to you. We ask it in the name of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. You know, for me, as I think of the term fellowship, this idea conjures up memories. Many, many memories, in fact. But I don't know about you, but just uh, top of the mind, when the word fellowship comes up, I often think of one thing. Do you know what that one thing is? Eating. Eating. I think of eating when I think of the word fellowship. I I particularly think of epic church potlucks often held in, in where? What part of the church? The fellowship hall, right? The fellowship hall. Now, growing up, uh, I went to a, a Methodist church growing up, and we had two buildings. We had kind of the sanctuary, and then we had the fellowship hall. And uh, it was separated by about you know, 50 yards of grass or so, so it was, it was pretty close together. I remember specifically that we would, maybe about once a month, have church potlucks uh, after church. And me and my fellow uh, children who went to that church, these were our absolute favorite days, our favorite days. And so we would uh, anxiously await for the pastor to to give his closing amen. And after that, quite literally, uh, we would walk as fast as we could down the, the aisle of the sanctuary, out the door, because we couldn't run in church. But once we got out of the sanctuary doors, you know what my friends and I would do? We would sprint, literally no lying, sprint with all of our might to the fellowship hall. You know why? Because if you were first in line at the fellowship hall, you got the very first choice of whatever you wanted of this fantastic spread, right, as we had our potluck. Well, as the story goes, uh, there was a friend of mine, and he was a year older, so he was a year faster than me, and he was a pretty good athlete. So he almost always made it to the front of the line. Uh, I remember one fateful day that this scenario played out. The pastor said, amen. We started running once we got out the door. And uh, he was ahead of everyone. He was ahead of me. I remember it. And uh, somebody uh, must have given him a little bit of a nudge. Hard to imagine that that would ever happen, right? But somebody running behind him gave him a little... No, it wasn't me, Stan. It wasn't me. Somebody, it wasn't me, gave him a little nudge in the back. Now, we had at um, two brick pillars, That were standing uh, at the very front door of our fellowship hall. These large brick edifices, right? And somebody gave him a little nudge, and he must have tripped, and quite literally, he went head first into a brick column. Head first. You, You know who won? The brick column won. I remember his head not splitting in two, but there was a large gash and much. Blood, and I remember as a child this this so so vividly. There was panic. There was parents scooping him up, and I remember pieces of brick in his head. I, I have this memory in my mind of pieces of brick just being lodged right there. Well, that that fellowship, you know, that we were going to enjoy was was kind of ruined for that day. So why do I talk about fellowship halls and eating? Well, let me ask you this question: What do you think of when you hear the word? fellowship, right? What comes to your mind? Well, I've told you what comes to my mind, and my guess is that for many of you, that's probably true. We often associate fellowship with eating together. Now, don't get me wrong. Fellowship is a, uh, eating together is a wonderful way to have fellowship together, but biblically speaking, it is so much more than that. Friends, how sad is it that we have so lessened the term fellowship to simply mean potluck, right? Today we transition into really a third and final section of our sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. That of community or being a part of his body, belonging to the body of Christ. That is corporate disciplines. These are spiritual disciplines that God has given the church that we can't do alone. We can't do them alone and they are avenues of God's grace See, God didn't make any Lone Ranger Christians. We cannot thrive in our spiritual life without other believers. So over the the next couple weeks, we will be looking at spiritual disciplines, such as participating in the ordinances, baptism, and communion. We will be talking about living a life of simplicity and sharing with one another. And we will be talking about going on mission for the cause of Christ together. This morning, however, we will focus on the first Discipline, the first corporate discipline, and that is we will simply call it fellowship. First of all, we'll see the definition of fellowship. What do we mean by fellowship? Rather, what does the Bible mean by the term fellowship? And then we will see three biblical distinctives, three biblical distinctives of what fellowship is or what it does. So let's begin with definition. Again, Mathis, in uh, the opening words of his book, his chapter on fellowship, Really introduces the subject well by saying this. He says, It's a shame that the word fellowship has fallen on hard times in some circles. He says, It is dying a death of domestication and triviality. It is an electric reality in the New Testament, an indispensable ingredient in the reality of the Christian faith, and one of God's chief means of grace in our lives. He says, The koinonia that is Greek for commonality or partnership or fellowship, that the first Christians shared, wasn't anchored in a common love for pizza, pop, and a nice clean evening of fun among the fellow churchified. He says its essence was their common Christ and their common life or death death mission together in his summons to take the faith worldwide in the face of impending persecution. He goes on to write, This fellowship, it is no chummy hobnob with apps and drinks and a game on the tube. He says, It is an all-in, life-or-death, collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opposition. Now, boy, isn't that a little different than how we typically think of what fellowship is? See, it's for good reason that the uh, the famous author uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, right, in the first of his three books uh, of the Lord of the Rings. Remember what that first book, which was then turned into a movie. Remember what it was called? It was called the Fellowship of the Rings, right? The Fellowship of the Ring. Now, isn't that interesting that he would name that book the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Because it was about a motley crew of nine Middle Earth creatures that embark on a seemingly impossible and treacherous journey, banded together, right, with the sole purpose of defeating evil and restoring good to Middle Earth. See, that movie is more akin to biblical fellowship than us eating together and sharing a turkey leg, right? That's more what biblical fellowship is like. In fact, in the New Testament, the word often translated fellowship can imply or mean several things. It can mean to have communion together or simply to be together. It can mean to contribute to a common cause. It can mean to have something in common with. But basically, there are two groups of words. Uh, you can put them together in two groups. The first group of words simply describe a partnership, a partnership in some common enterprise or work. That is, doing something with other people for a common goal, right? See, that emphasizes doing things together. We do something together with a common purpose. But the other set of words uh, really emphasizes being together. Being together, right? That is, a sharing uh, time and fellowship often resulting in, in sharing our goods and our time and our efforts and our energy with one another. So I really like this definition. This definition is from uh, a pastor, Bob Gillum. And uh, I really think he brings these two uh, sides of the coin of fellowship together in his definition. Let's read it together. He says this, fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers, right? So that's the first part of the coin. Fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers. But it doesn't stay there. He says that expresses itself in outer co-participation with Christ and with one another, in accomplishing God's will on the earth, right? So we see this dual nature of biblical fellowship. We'll return to this definition in a bit. So we've seen what fellowship is. I'd like to spend the rest of our time this morning taking a look at three distinctives. Three distinctives of biblical fellowship. And the first distinctive is this. Biblical fellowship is community creating. It creates community. So let's return back to our definition. We we see it in Pastor Bob's definition, right? He says, fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers. So he's talking about this relationship, this fellowship that we share together as, as Christians. But let me ask you a question. Where does this inner unity come from? See, in the New Testament, we see that fellowship is both Godward and manward. Fellowship can be both Godward and manward and in that order. See, fellowship begins, biblical fellowship begins with God. It begins with God, right, and it creates fellowship or a relationship with the triune God. Allowing us, in a sense, to join the eternally existent fellowship of the Trinity. So biblical fellowship begins with us having a relationship with the triune God. So for instance, in 1 Corinthians 1.9, we learn that Christians, quote, were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So as a Christian, we have fellowship with Jesus. But not only that, 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen. Paul prays that the Corinthian church, that they would, quote, uh, the, he, he speaks of that they would have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And he says, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there's a sense when we become Christians, we have fellowship with Jesus. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit. But not only that, 1 John 1, 3, we discover that, quote, indeed, in the words of John, our fellowship is with the Father and with with his son, Jesus Christ. So you see my point, right? Biblically speaking, the word fellowship is used to describe this relationship that we have with God through faith in Christ. It is a God word, fellowship first. But it doesn't stop there. Because once we have established a relationship with God, that relationship then overflows, and it creates a man word, fellowship or relationship with other Christians, right? So... Take Acts chapter 2, verse, verse uh, 42. It's a key text on the word fellowship. It is said of the first church, quote, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to what? Fellowship. And to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, uh, Paul speaks of of the fellowship that he received from the other apostles. He called it uh, the right hand of fellowship. So here's the point. Fellowship, biblically, first is Godward. We come into a relationship with God through faith in Christ, and then that fellowship with God creates a fellowship with other Christians, right? So fellowship is community creating. First, it creates a fellowship with the triune God through personal faith in Jesus. And then, as a result, it creates a fellowship in the body of of Christ, So what this means for us is at least twofold. First of all, what this means for us is that we cannot have true fellowship with each other unless we first have fellowship with God. We can't have true biblical fellowship with one another a- as a church unless we first have fellowship with God. Friends, if you're looking for real, though imperfect, community in a local church, you have to go through the cross. See, community comes through the cross. So let me ask you a question, friends. Have you come into a relationship with the triune God? Have you come into fellowship with him through repentance from sin and trust in yourself? And have you come to trust in this gospel, this good news, in the person and work of Jesus? He lived perfectly and you could not. He died for your sins, bearing his father's wrath that you and I deserved. And he rose from the dead to give new and eternal life. And that gift is simply received by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's not earned. It's not something we uh, can work for. It's simply received as a gift. So friends, have you begun this fellowship with God? Have you come to know Jesus personally? See, we can't have fellowship with other Christians if we're not a Christian ourselves, right? Second, we base our relationship with other believers on our shared relationship with God. Right, Our relationship with other Christians, this fellowship that we have with one another, it's based upon our relationship with God. That is, It's rooted in our relationship with God. So what that means is that Christian, ultimately what holds us together, is not our preferences for worship style or geographical location or even a common commitment to a local church. Those things are great. But what holds us together, together is the fact that we have the same Heavenly Father and we follow the same Jesus, and we submit to the same Spirit, right? And when this so-called fellowship, when our fellowship with one another is simply based on personal preferences, our fellowship will eventually fall apart because those preferences might change. They might be challenged. But when our fellowship with one another as brothers and sisters is based solely upon our common relationship with God, then that fellowship can weather the storm. And not only that, But our fellowship can be better in the midst of the storm. So first and foremost, the first distinctive of biblical fellowship is that it is community creating. It creates community with God and it creates community with one another. But not only that, not only is it community creating, but there's a second biblical distinctive and that's this. It is outward reaching. It is outward-reaching. See, not only does biblical fellowship happen um, in the church, right? It's not only just about relationships that we have with one another, but biblical fellowship is actually outward-reaching. It goes beyond the walls of the church, right? It goes on mission for the sake of the lost through the gospel, and we lock arms together to do it. So it is outward-reaching. You know, biblical fellowship, to use a somewhat elementary example— Biblical fellowship is sort of like a a huddle in football. If you know what I'm talking about, you've ever seen a football game, typically teams on offense, they have the ball, will gather together in a circle or a semicircle. It's called a huddle. And they'll often kind of lean in, right, because they all want to hear what play is being called. So the sideline signals in the play, and then the guys uh, huddle because they want to you know what they're supposed to be doing, right? Um, they, they might bow their heads or even hold their hands. So, so uh, it has an inward component, right? This inward component of the huddle. They're gathering together. They're close, right? Right? In, in, in a very similar manner, biblical fellowship, it, it has an inward component. It's community creating. We just talked about that. But just like in football, right, it has an outward component as well. So if you pay money to go to a, a football game, whether it's high school or college, or let's say you pay 100 bucks and you go to see the Bears, right? I'm not playing today, but let's just say you did. You went to see the Bears. Now, you didn't pay that money to go see those 11 guys hold hands all game long in the huddle, did you? You, didn't, you don't really... You're not all that interested to know what they're doing in the huddle. What are you you interested in? You want to know what them, having met together, what then they can accomplish together on the field, right? See, we don't pay money to see the huddle. We pay money to see the game, right? What happens outside of the huddle. Friends, biblical fellowship has an inward huddle. Many aspects of inward huddling. But if we as a church just simply huddle together and enjoy biblical fellowship— but we're not going out and playing the game of Christianity, if you will, then our fellowship is lacking, right? Our biblical fellowship, our being together, should naturally progress into our doing things together, going on mission. There is an outward-reaching component. Again, take a look at our definition on the screen behind me. Fellowship is a relationship of inner unity among believers. That's the huddle part, right? But then notice that huddle does something that expresses itself in outer co-participation with Christ and with other believers in accomplishing God's will on the the earth. In other words, our shared faith in Christ manifests itself in participating with Christ and other Christians for his purposes in the world, right? See, one good example of this is found in the opening chapter of the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, We'll take a look at verses 3, 4, and 5. The book of Philippians is essentially a thank you letter. The church at Philippi had sent Paul some money to help support his mission of sharing the gospel where the gospel had not been preached. And so Paul writes the the Philippians back, and he he, he tells them lots of things, but basically it's a thank you letter. Notice what he says in in chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with you because of your partnership. Now notice that word. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word translated here in the NIV, partnership, is the same word, koinonia, fellowship. Paul could have said, because of your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So what Paul is saying is that their financial support is a fellowship. It's a partnership with him to spread the gospel, right? So notice, there is a progression that we see, a progression of biblical fellowship. First, we come into fellowship with God through faith in Jesus, right? And then, once that is established, we have a fellowship with other Christians. And then, right, that fellowship overflows into working with other Christians to advance the cause of our shared Savior. So what that means for us is this. True fellowship overflows. True fellowship overflows into participating in advancing God's purposes, right? So we can't just stay in the huddle. We have to break huddle and go do things together as Christians, See, a church that really is growing in its relationship with one another doesn't do so at the expense of the lost world around it, right? See, we don't have to choose between being inward-focused and being outward-focused. We can do both, and we should do both. Mathis, in his book, says it wonderfully. He says, From top to bottom, the gospel creates community like no other. But this fellowship is no isolated commune or static mutual admiration society. He says, in such a partnership as this, we need not worry too much that we will forget the lost and sequester the gospel. And then he hits it on the head. He says, real fellowship will do precisely the opposite. It must. I love this last line. The same Jesus who joins us commissions us. The same Jesus that is with us, that joins us together as brothers and sisters, is the same Christ that sends us out on mission. So friends, if our fellowship and enjoyment and deepening of our relationships with one another ever turn so inward to the point that our outward gaze is blurred, then we have lost the true essence of biblical fellowship. But as we have fellowship with Jesus and one another, that very same Jesus joins us together and joins with us and pushes us out the door and into the mission field. So friends, let me, we have to ask, are we enjoying our holy huddle a little bit too much? Or are we allowing true biblical fellowship to push us out of the huddle, out of the door, and on mission for Jesus? So biblical fellowship, it's community creating. It is outward reaching. And then third, it is inward preserving. It is Inward, preserving. So biblical fellowship not only labors to be unified together and to reach the lost, but it strives to sustain the salvation of the saved. It strives to sustain the salvation of the saved. See, one final distinctive of biblical fellowship that, uh, unfortunately, is often overlooked or even ignored is that of what the Bible calls accountability, rebuke, restoration— Correction, whatever, pick your biblical term of a straying brother or sister, so when I was a teenager, um, I enjoyed baseball, and uh, my friends in our little uh, community also enjoyed baseball and uh, my mom and dad we had we had about two or three acres, and so uh, we had plenty of room for a baseball field and so uh, my friends would gather at my house and we would just play sandlot ball, you know we'd just have fun playing baseball together and uh, but we noticed that there was a bit of a problem. At least it was a problem for us. And that is that um, really nobody wanted to play catcher because we didn't have gear. So we were pitching and we were batting, but we didn't have a catcher, nor did we have a backstop. So you, you see where the problem is there? Uh, because, you know, the pitcher, well, sometimes he wasn't very good, and he threw one in the dirt, and the ball would go, you know, 20 feet beyond the batter, and we'd have to go get it. And sometimes the pitch would be good, and the batter would swing and miss it, and the ball would go 20 feet. You see the point, right? Uh, it was kind of hard to sending a baseball game without a backstop. So I asked my dad, who's very generous, um, Dad, would you build us a backstop? And he did. And so he, he built us this wonderful kind of chain-length uh, iron backstop that was at least 10 feet tall, maybe. I'm not exactly sure. But it, it was big enough to maybe catch the occasional foul ball, right? And it certainly stopped wild pitches uh, and things like that. And we really enjoyed this, this backstop, right? Friends, Christian fellowship is meant to be a sort of spiritual backstop, right? It's supposed to be a sort of spiritual backstop, when the occasional wild pitch of waywardness comes our way. See, it is there to keep us from wandering too far, both from God and the historical belief that Christians hold. There are so many texts throughout the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, that speak to this idea. But let's just take a look at one. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. And uh, we will see a key text here that speaks of biblical fellowship being inward preserving. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll take a look at verses 12 and 13. The author of Hebrews writes this, "...see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But," verse 13 says, "...but encourage one another daily." As long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, here Christians are told that we are to encourage one another daily, regularly, right? It's supposed to be something we do often. And, and, and when we do that, it's a means of preventing us from turning away from God, from sin creeping into our life and our hearts being hardened by its deceitfulness. See, there within a local church should be a spirit of mutual concern and admonition, right? And that should counteract this hardening of one's heart by willful, unrepentant sin or outright rejection of the biblical truth. But what is often missed in this conversation, what's often overlooked or outright denied, is that the giving of correction or reproof or rebuke when rightly done and for the right reasons is actually a means of grace. It is a great act of love for a brother to come to me or a sister to come to you and inform you of a sin pattern that they see. It is a great act of love. It is a means of grace that God has given his church. Right? Matthew says this. He says, Reproof is a fork in the road for a sinful soul. Will we cringe at correction like a curse or embrace rebuke as a blessing? Friends, I have to ask myself that. And you have to ask yourself that too. So, as we consider the Bible's teaching on fellowship, will we take this part of it seriously? Will we not only suffer it when a brother or sister expresses concern over us, but will we embrace it? And not only that, but will we be willing to stick our necks out out for someone else and offer it to them? Notice what Galatians chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what Paul says. He says this, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live in the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. So as we close our time here together, Mathis offers five, I think, helpful steps. He calls them uh, five steps toward correction that is truly Christian. Let's chew on these momentarily. Number one, as we go to offer correction to a brother, if we take that step of love, Number one, we should check our own hearts, right? Jesus taught this clearly. We see it in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus taught us to, to first, right, take the plank out of your own eye, he said. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye, right? So it's, this is what I find fascinating. It's so easy for me, and I think probably for you, It's so easy for us to see a particular sin in somebody else, most often because that sin struggle resides in our own hearts first, right? It's so easy for me to see anger in somebody else because I know that that sin has a place in my heart. We notice it. So first and foremost, we check our own heart, right? Number two, we seek to sympathize. Whether we have been in those particular sin shoes, so to speak, or not, we should seek to to be sympathetic, in the manner in which we speak, our tone, our approach, should be characterized by that of gentleness. We see it a couple places at, at least Galatians chapter six. Paul says that this should be done gently in second Timothy chapter two. Paul says his, to his, his, his protege he says he says opponents must be gently instructed, so there should be a, a, a sense of sympathy and of, and of gentleness in our approach. Number three. We should certainly pray for restoration. We pray that that person would see and understand what we're trying to say. See, restoration and life change is, of course, the goal of any biblical reproof. We saw that back in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, right? Paul says, so that that person may be restored gently. Restoration. So as we approach someone, we pray that God would soften their hearts to your God-initiated and Bible-based pleas. We we pray for them, right? Number four. Good advice. Be quick. Did you catch the immediacy in Hebrews chapter 3? I don't know if you caught it, but in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, right, the author tells us <clears throat> to encourage one another. How often? Weekly? Monthly? Annually? Did you remember, remember what he said? Daily, right? Daily. There is a sense of, a sense of immediacy here. Uh, to be quick to cut it in the bud, right? So Mathis says it well when he says the ideal is that we live in such honest and regular community with each other. And we speak without delay. That sin is regularly nipped in the bud rather than given time and space to grow into the tall, nasty weed that it will become. So be quick. And number five, be clear and specific. Be clear and specific. So when we approach uh, a brother or a sister, it would be helpful that we not him haw or tiptoe around, but we make it clear. This is what we've observed. This is what we've seen. Here's what we're concerned of. This is how it might be harmful. Specific examples are helpful, but be clear and be specific. So, friends, what is biblical fellowship? What does it mean to participate in this discipline together? What should we think of when we hear the word fellowship? My prayer for us is that it would uh, conjure up more than memories of potlucks, right, shared in fellowship halls. My prayer is that we would think of it as community creating. It creates a relationship with God through faith in Jesus and a shared participation in the body of Christ, right? That we would think of fellowship as outward reaching as we then lock arms to go on mission together. And finally, that we would think of a fellowship that is is inward preserving. It's a spiritual backstop, right, to keep us from backsliding. So friends, we're going to pray And then I'm going to ask you to stand, and we'll read a section of Acts chapter 2, verse 42 together. So let's pray now. Father, we are so grateful for what your word has revealed to us. And Father, we confess that we often uh, minimize and belittle what fellowship really is, but it is an electric reality that we see in Scripture. It is an essential part of following Christ. It is absolutely, undeniably um, needed and necessary Father, we can't live this Christian life alone. We need other brothers and sisters. We need them to be a part of this church, this community that we have together. We we need each other, Father, to go arm in arm out into the world. And Father, we need each other to serve as a spiritual backstop when we lose our way. So give us your grace to embrace every aspect of it. In Jesus' name, and God's people said. Amen. Let's do this, church. Let's stand together, and we're going to recite together Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as a reminder of what the early church devoted themselves to. Acts chapter 2. Let's read this together. Are we ready? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Church, may we do the same. See you next week.